Hey up, and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is a conversation with Uwe Lurch. Now, Uwe has had a really long and storied career. I'm actually going to call him a veteran of this particular game, which began when he started Rock Hard magazine in Germany in 1983, and he worked his way up working for many different rock and metal magazines and having a stint at Roadrunner in the mid to late 80s, all the way up to the modern day where he's still carrying the flame with his podcast, The Blog of Rock, which I've linked below. An incredibly interesting dude. Uh, we effectively chat his entire career from those humble beginnings with Rock Hard magazine with a particular focus on Roadrunner, obviously, for my interests, but certainly do yourself a favour and check out the blog of rock at your earliest convenience. But yeah, let's jump into it. One, two, fuck it up. I'm sorry for a bit for being a bit late, but uh, I totally misunderstood that I I had to encode my interview, which I've done before. So that's why it oh, took so a bit good. longer. I had a one-hour interview with a new band. Very nice one, which is called Mantra from Croatia. Mantra. Mantra, yeah. mantra, mantra. Why have I heard that before? How, how new are they? Quite new. It's the second album. It's a kind of medieval rock stuff. And uh, I haven't heard them before, but it uh, was quite funny to talk to the guys because a different kind of culture. They have kind of war anthems. Let's say Lyric Rise, a bit like Sabaton. Right, yeah. But the whole sound is more like, you know, the, this German folk metal stuff like In Extremo and these kinds of bands. And it's a cool mixture. And uh, anyway, we're done and happy to see you. <laughs> you too. I, I want to ask you a little like um, a lot of editing questions as well, just because I've listened to your podcast a few times and I think it's it's nice and tight. And I think your interview style is really interesting. You can really engage it. You've got a way like you don't ask a question about the music as such as you make an observation dressed as a question. And I think that engages the artist really quickly and they, they, they latch onto that and they can explore, you know, the territory a little bit more um, concisely. I think that was really cool, but we are, we are here for a reason and that is Roadrunner. So how did you establish your relationship with Roadrunner? At this point you're doing PR, aren't you? You're doing writing for magazines and this is the mid late eighties, right? That's right. Uh, I started uh, actually with the first moment I went into the business was in the summer of 83. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, I was actually going to my last year of school in, in Germany. At that time, I was a tape trader uh, with some friends all around the world. We're exchanging mm -hmm. demos and, and bootlegs. And there was already the German art shock in the market. I come from a place called Dortmund, which was uh, quite close to the Dutch border. And there were some guys uh, doing a German version of the Artshock magazine. I didn't know the, the Dutch one, the original one before, but there was this magazine in my record store and I thought, this is cool. This is a lot of new bands. Of course, mm -hmm. it's not about Iron Maiden or ACDC. It's about the new bands. Yeah? yeah. So it was quite like a, like a new world to us. Yeah. Some of these bands we knew from radio. Uh, we had British radio in, in, in my place, which was BFBS, the HM show by the good old Tony Jasper. And so we knew some of these new bands, some of them we knew from the record store because we were the best clients. So we were a bit, let's say, more experienced than the rest of it, than the rest of uh, our friends. Mm -hmm. But in September 83, we decided we're going to do a fan scene around this knowledge we have. And uh, it was the friends of ours who came south from uh, Frankfurt. Uh, they had their own magazine. They were tape trading friends from us. And they did a magazine called Shock Power, which was a kind of Xerox magazine 
with some interviews, with some reviews, really bad photos, uh, hand-typed uh, headlines and so on. And I received this magazine along with cassettes while I was on vacation with my parents in the south of Bavaria. And um, I got this. Of course, I was happy having my Walkman, getting some new cassettes to uh, to listen to it. And I immediately called Holger, my best friend at that time. We knew each other from school and we went to the record store almost twice, three times a week, buying uh, records and listening to metal and everything is changing records. And I called him. I said, listen, I've got this magazine. We have to do something similar. So by that time, we're talking about the summer of 83. Uh, we decided we're going to do a magazine. So when I came home from this vacation, we we thought, what should we do? Okay, we need to do some news. We do some do some uh, reviews about concerts we're going to. We should uh, you know write articles about records we buy and let's do it. So what happened was that in September '83, we went to a copy shop in Dortmund and we copied 50 issues of this treasure, the first Rock Heart magazine. With Halford on the cover, we stole, we're stealing, uh, no, sorry, we stole this, uh, um, this photo, I think from Kerrang, all these uh, logos we took from records or from somewhere else. And this was the first, first issue, 50, wow. 50. There was actually an accept review of this photo we, we bought from a photographer, actually gave it to us, we knew. And we went to the local record store where we were kids every day and we were asking, Hey, we have a magazine. Can you place it here? And they said, yeah, of course, we're going to do it. It was on Friday. So on Saturday, we went there to see, because we were meeting our friends anyway every day there. And so on Friday, uh, we placed the magazine. On Saturday, we, we went there. We're looking. Are there still some magazines? Did you sell something? And they said, almost everything is gone. Oh. All 50. We said, they cannot be. Uh, somebody said, no, no, we sold it. On Monday, we went there and all 50 were gone. And we were asked, can you do another 50? So we went back to the copy shop, made another 50 and gave it to this shop and another shop in Dortmund, which was also not that known for metal, but they had also some imports. So and, at this point, how, how much time are you sinking into Xeroxing all the pages? And It was quite some time. It was a Xerox shop, especially for university guys. So they were known to, let's say, have a, a Xerox where you can have every page on a different layer. So if you made a, you know, we had 27 pages. So, you know, we didn't have to sort every page anew, but it was quite an effort. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we spent our own money, but we got, received it back as a first investment after three days. And we did another 50. <laughs> the funny thing is that on Tuesday, I was still living with my parents. There was a, um, there was a guy ringing from the post service and he was bringing me a record with a letter. And this letter was from a guy called Boggy Kopek. And he was the manager of the German band called Faithful Breath. Faithful Breath, at that time, they were a band who were having like a Viking outfit. But there was, it was a regular hard rock band, but they're looking a bit like Vikings, yeah? And he sent me a letter. Uvo, I got your magazine on, on Monday when I was in Dortmund and uh, I like it. Good, good choice to start uh, your journalistic career. Blah, blah, blah. This is our new album. Um, if you want to review it, we will be happy. And we were so proud. Actually, I was so proud receiving my first record as a gift, not for my parents for Christmas or for, for birthday. It was from a band. And even I didn't like that album that much because it was not 
really, really a, a groundbreaking album. I was so proud because it was my first contact to the scene. Mm. Fast forward, Boggy became later the managing director of the label Drakkar and managed lots of bands, worked together with Gravedigger, with Rage, with Creator and lots of other German bands. And he's still somehow in the business and we know each other from that day. But for me, it was, I started this magazine with my friend in 83. So a month later, we made another magazine. We had 200, then we had 400, and then we started printing it at a you know, local printing company in Dortmund. And it grew, it grew, it grew. We found some more places where to, to get our uh, uh, record out in the stores. And then a year later, in 84, we went to our first festival outside Germany. We went to Heavy Sound Festival in Poperinge, Belgium. Oh, wow. And we were backstage. By the way, King Diamond, uh, uh, sorry, Birth of Fate played there. It was also Metallica playing. It was UFO playing and Motorhead as a four-piece. It was a comeback of Motorhead as a four-piece. And um, this was quite awesome. And we were backstage hanging around while... People were asking us, ah, are you the cool guys from this new magazine? Oh, yeah, nice. Maybe we could help you. And there were some first people who worked together in Hanover, which was later, let's say, the groundbreaking for SPV records, Steamhammer records in Hanover, Germany. Mm-hmm. And so we got in touch with a label who they later on sponsored us with the first advertising. So we were quite proud that we went to this outside game for us and we met people from the industry so we went on and produced more magazines went to more concerts we got the first uh, advertisements in the magazine another year later we were felt we were feeling like stars we went again to this festival in 85 and i recall my first contact with roadrunner with leo lanz from cologne he was the promoter of the female headliner of this festival which was lee aaron she played there. Right, okay. And um, he was promoting her. We're at the same festival where also Slayer played the first European festival show on the Hello Waits album. Yeah. It was the second European gig of Slayer at all, and it was the first festival show. But I was a fan of Lee Aaron. I liked her as a, you know, she was a good-looking woman. Still she is. And, uh, but Leo was promoting her, so I was trying to get an interview with her, which I succeeded. And uh, let's have a look somewhere. I will have the picture <laughs> here. And I don't know. I will hear it. And uh, so I was this 20-year-old kid interviewing Lee Aaron, <laughs> which was quite nice. She had this kind of red spandex trousers where everybody could see her camel toe was nice. And... There was this guy next to her, which was Leo Lanz. So as I was really interested in Lee Aaron, he was asking me, where are you? Who are you? I said, yeah, Rock Hard Magazine, you guys. And so he said, listen, I'm working part-time for Roadrunner Records. We need some guys who were writing our biographies. And uh, maybe I'm in Cologne. Maybe you come come by and we could... uh, Let's say we could uh, work together. You can do interviews from my office because at that time it was quite unusual to have phone calls to the US from your parents' uh, telephone. Yeah? yeah. So I said, okay, I'd rather drive the 100 kilometers to your office and then we could do all the interviews. I could record them somehow with a tape recorder. I could do biographies if you want or something. 
and uh, I have the interviews exclusively for my magazine. That's how it started. I cannot recall how long we did it this way. It was okay. somewhere in the summer of 85. But I remember that one day, maybe a few months later, he told me, if you come over next time to Cologne to meet me, I'll take you to Amsterdam because Case Vessels wants to meet you. He wants to talk to you. I said, why? You know, we're planning more things into Germany. We want to grow our business over there. And we need somebody who, on the one hand, could not only write the band biographies in German, of course, you know, mm. but maybe who could do also these kinds of sales information sheets. You know, you have to, to give it to the retail. You have to do it also for press. We need somebody who could do this. And as you are a kind of editor with your magazine, maybe you want to do it. And this was actually the first time when I went with Leo to Amsterdam to the legendary office in the Van Eichenstraat and meeting Kiss Vessels. Wow. Wow. So let's just unpack a few bits of that. So what? where's Leo operating out of? Because he's got his own office, but it's not a roadrunner office. It's just no, him. He was a freelance TV. I think he was a TV promoter originally from Cologne. Cologne is one of the biggest media cities in Germany. There is radio station and, and TV programs and all around. And Leo was somehow working for some artists. And I actually, at Leo's office, I met uh, Lemmy and Wurzel on the Augustmatron uh, promotion. I had a great, great talk uh, with uh, Lee Aaron again later on. And uh, my the most funniest talk I had with Lars Ulrich on the uh, Master of Puppets. Wow. promotion by back then yeah so that's why i've been to his place a few times but he was not as i recall he was not exclusively working for roadrunner and he was not a writer at all so somehow i got picked as somebody who was maybe trying to get a business of it while my other friends they wanted to stay, stay cool they wanted to stay independent they want didn't want to get paid by the record company so on i said well <laughs> why not i'm making some money before i was uh copying tapes and sending all around the world. Yeah. Some people call it illegal. I said it was just promotion when sending the German demos to the US and receiving back the the, the US bands. Uh, you know, it was a kind of uh, viral thing at that time. But this was actually the first time when I thought, oh, I could do some money with this kind of right. crazy hobby I have. So this is 85, is it? So yeah. Merciful Fate has kicked off. Uh, Rodrin has established itself as one of the stronger licensing arms in Europe in terms of, uh, I don't know if Germany was a territory they were hitting with Metallica, but they certainly were hitting a lot, um, a lot of European territories with Metallica and Motorhead. Did you understand Roadrunner to be a big name at that time? So when, when Leo said, oh, we need some help over at Roadrunner, were you like, oh, Roadrunner, or was it like, who? No, no, no. Of course, we knew Roadrunner being a journalist for, for Rock Art magazine, um, We rarely received uh, free copies at that time. It was not that usual that you receive a package of new albums at that time. So we were buying actually the albums and mm. we knew Roadrunner rarely as a label with own origin artists. They only had a few at that time, but we knew them of course also as uh, let's say import distribution partner for other labels. And uh, especially I was really focused on the, West Coast part, my my favorite labels were Shrapnel Records and Metal Blade, especially yeah. Metal Blade. I was a big, big fan, yeah? Mm. And so I was honored on the one hand to do interviews with all these Metal Blade bands. And uh, initially it was that you really, I didn't dive into it in the beginning 
who, who's belonging to which kind of part of the business of Roadrunner. So I went there at the at the office. I remember Case sitting in his big office with lots of uh, records around him and also the other guys who work at that time there. There was uh, um, this guy, Louis, which has also been mentioned in the in the other interviews you had, and Rebecca, he, she was his assistant. Um, and there was Hans, he was uh, the bookkeeper, so to say, the accountant, uh, I remember. And uh, But the first time I went to, to Amsterdam, I remember that Kiss asked me, can you do this job for us? Um, doing this kind of uh, biographies and doing this sales information sheet. So I went home, I thought, how should I do it? And then I started on a frequent basis, first to do this kind of artist-based thing. So I did it with my type machine. Oh, wow. So it's a German, let's say, biography about the uh, Augustmatron album which, you know, I lay out at this without a computer, just, you know, <laughs> handwrite it. It was July 86, by the way. Wow. Yeah, so this was one, let's say, of my earliest works. Then I did also these ones, which were a small format one, like a printed, like a, you know, more... That's awesome. Actually, it was like a little magazine, yeah? And this, so, was, this is just a promo pack, so you're going to be sending that around to what, say, radio, TV places? To radio, to to actually, I, you know, I printed it and I sent it to Amsterdam and they distributed it and I kept only a few to send it over to some magazines. Yeah, At that time, I was stepping off a bit from Rock Hard already because I couldn't do both because at that time, I finished already my school or my degree and uh, I was uh, starting my, my studies in, in mm. Dortmund, in my hometown. So I was part-time a student. I was trying to get my MBA at that time. Uh, while Holger, he didn't like that. He started also his uh, economics, uh, but uh, it was not his thing. He really dreamt about, you know, his only chance uh, is being successful with, with rock art. And I always dreamt of going maybe to media, maybe to a big venue in, in my hometown Dortmund. There was this... Uh, this arena called Westfalenhalle, which was the biggest indoor arena in Europe at that time, talk, uh, talking late 70s, early 80s, where all the big bands played. And I was lucky to, to see all these bands already at that time. So when I was 14, I saw ACDC with Bon Scott, with Judas Priest opening. Yeah? So this was my, the day maybe I became a heavy metal fan on the 22nd of November in 79. So this was really my, one of the most historical day of my life. Oh. So I started these kind of uh, promo things and I actually kept them all. I have tons of them. Yeah. So this is the ones I made. And uh, I went to Amsterdam, you know, not only the one time when I was with Leo, I went then I went them more frequent with my car. I had a Ford Fiesta at that time and I went there. Uh, it was a two hour 20 ride from my place. And it was always a kind of adventure because you had these borders to cross, you know, the customs, you had to show your passport. And uh, it was, I remember the first time I was there after the first meeting with, with Leo, I went the first time, I said, oh, I'm invited now. I said, my parents, I will go to Amsterdam. I don't know. Yeah, it was rock and roll. I don't know how long I'll go there. Yeah, to take my, my uh, toothbrush with me. I don't know how long it will take. Yeah, so I went there. I don't know what, what I would expect it, yeah. But I went there and I remember that we had a meeting case and this guy, Louis, and then as we, I was told, let's go for, for lunch. And I thought, oh, great. The record boss inviting me for lunch. 
but we went to a regular sandwich bar and I was, I think I was paying it by myself. Yeah. So <laughs> it was, was quite uh, unusual at that time, but I really enjoyed it because I was more into the scene. We communicated even at that time by phone quite often because there was no email at that time mm-hmm. and no, no cell phone, of course, but I had a frequent uh, information exchange, especially with Louis at that time, Louis Dobela. Okay. Okay. Interesting. What was your first impression of Case then at that time? Because he was an older guy at this point, because he must have been 20, not not even 20 at this point, right? I was 20, 21, and Case was in his mid-40s, maybe already end-40s, yeah, maybe even older, I don't know. And uh, he was a he was a strange guy, so to say, but I, I would say um, that he was leaving most of the of this kind of uh, informations exchange with his uh, with with his uh, other people, but uh, I never had any issue when it came to kind of payments or so on. I had a little money which I received, um, and every time I was there, we asked by Luis if you can come. I I was there maybe every second month, so to say. And uh, every time I was there, Case was there as well to say hello and hi, but it was not that he was my main uh, contact at Roadrunner. But, you know, it was a pleasure meeting him throughout these times I was there. And even, we come to that later, even years after when I met him at other uh, other, uh, occasions, like these German music fairs, he was still nice to me. Yeah, so that was at least I have to be at least thankful to him that he picked me out of this young bunch of uh, editors to to give me the chance to to work for him. It seems that he knew what he was doing in the sense of he didn't know metal, but he did know that he could find some kids who did like metal, and that's what the workforce should have been built on. I that's think right. He knew that. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. At least I would, you know. Leo was the one who who picked me up before because I didn't I did wouldn't expect that Case had read my articles or maybe had read articles from other guys and let's say picked me maybe I was I was the right one because I was the one who was fan of Lee Aaron and was there at this moment yeah so could have been anybody yeah but uh, I was there and um, this maybe was the, the moment when uh, I started my career in the record industry. What else was happening in PR at the time? So we mentioned Artrock had a German art outfit. I know Artrock Metal Hammer happens at some point. This was Kerrang, later. Yeah. yeah, Kerrang's about started in the UK, I think. Yeah, what yeah, they, they, they've been on the market as well. At the, at the moment, uh, the German market was, uh, there was Metal Hammer Germany who came after Rock Hard. It was, mm-hmm. but this was the first real magazine with posters and with... Uh, 4C artworks and so on. Rock Art was still an underground magazine, a fan scene. Yeah, it became bigger, but we made it up to 1,000, 2,000 copies a month. It's, this was a border, and we we had the distribution only in record stores. That was mm-hmm. it. Yeah, Metal Hammer was already a really a, a magazine. Yeah, it was of course it was our biggest enemy, so to say. We were quite jealous because these guys they were flying to the US to do the interviews, and we only, you know, we only caught the bands when they were in Europe, most of the bands at least, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it was uh, quite uh, a good a good relationship while both magazines were based in Dortmund. Yeah. And that's why it was uh, quite funny for me being still with Rock Art 
doing promotion for Roadrunner artists at the Metal Hammer office. So it was like a Trojan horse for me. Every time I went there, officially for Roadrunner, they tried to hide something from me. Yeah, this was quite <laughs> quite funny. Yeah, and then a bit later, I think it was more the end of '85. Uh, there was another magazine in the market which was called Crash. Crash was more, uh, you know, really a poster boy magazine with all these hair metal bands on the front. And this was also with another publishing company, which who had uh, some some other big music magazines in Germany. And the same thing, what happened with Roadrunner happened with me with this magazine, because I was picked as one of the few German journalists who could write also for this magazine. So I got a kind of a task, I wouldn't say job, to go there every second month for one week to make the final editor's week, to having yeah. touched the, the last interviews and the last stories and the news. And I shared this job with my friend Alex Gernand, who was the original editor of this Shock Power magazine. And uh, we were tape trading fans from the early 80s. And he this this magazine was based in Munich. So I went there to Munich also, which is a longer drive from my hometown Dortmund, about six hours with my little car. But this was also a kind of business because I got to interview bigger stars at, at that time, even sure. US stars. Yeah, this was quite nice. But I was able to combine all together. So there was a chance that I could interview, let's say, Lizzie Borden for Roadrunner when they were releasing the Visualize album. And this was the first album which could have had a kind of international breakthrough for this underground band from Metal Blade. Yeah. And while Lizzie was not in Europe, I was the only one or one of the only few ones who had an interview with him. I sold this interview. Not, no, I got not only money from Roadrunner for doing the promotional and uh, the biography, but also sold this interview to magazines like uh, Crash in Germany and also to Burn in Japan. I had a network of other magazines which right. were asking for some interviews. So I made some quite good money while I was still studying. So I was thinking, why the hell should I do this uh, crazy exams while I'm already earning money? So we're talking yeah. about 1,000, 2,000 German mark at that time, which was not bad yeah, no. for a guy living still with his parents and having a fridge full of uh, food. So it was just for me, for my fun. Yeah. So it was quite not a bad time. We're talking about now 86 already. Okay. I want to talk about, I want to talk about, I've got a few questions off the back of that, but let's start with Burn. Because you mentioned you, 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 had, you heard the chat with Ed. Since the Ed conversation, I've been trying to unpack what Japan's doing at this point because. One thing Roadrunner does is it distributes, as we know, quite quite regularly at this point throughout Europe. It's quite a reliable name, but it also sends stuff out to the Far East Metal Syndicate, which is a bit of a blind spot for me. I've, I've no idea, because it seems like they might be the only label out there dealing with that kind of stuff. I'm just wondering, is it was it a beast of its own design? Was it a case-sponsored venture, the Far East Metal Syndicate? I don't know. I've no idea. I'm wondering, wondering if you knew anything about the Japanese metal scene at the time, and maybe relay some of your experience with Burn. Um, you know, there were some bands, of course, from Japan, which were very exotic at that time. I remember on uh, Rock Hard number four, it was the first Rock Hard which was printed, not co Xerox copied anymore, but printed, and yeah. this was the release of the Dis Disillusion album by Loudness. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, Loudness at that time was a really exotic band. The first album were all Japanese at all. And, you know, you couldn't buy them just an import. They were quite expensive, but they had this, you know, extra paper around this uh, album. So it was quite an, unusual to have an album. But then Disillusion came and uh, there were some, let's say, English lyrics partially. And we thought it could be cool to at least understand the English lyrics. And we printed the loudness lyrics in the magazine. So we took it out of the record and we printed this, but 80% were Japanese letters. So people were laughing at us. So this is one memory to the Japanese market. There were some other bands like Bow Wow, later Wow Wow, and 5X actually, yeah, by the way, we had in our first rock art, we had a Japanese special, a special about Japan, Japanese bands. So this was, right. let's say, on the artist side, we already, yeah, there were some, some loud nets. There was a band called Human Target. Yeah, that's right. And, <laughs> and some other ones, um, which they had funny names. But I do not recall, coming back to Roadrunner, how they distributed their stuff in Japan. This, this yeah. was... Before you were mentioning Far East Metal Syndicate, I haven't heard the name for, I don't know, 30 years. I actually, I cannot fill the blind spot for you. Sorry. That's quite all right. It'll remain a mystery, I think. So when you're working with Roadrunner, and you're still effectively a freelancer at this point because you're selling That's right. interviews in, in whatever capacity. You've just got an informal arrangement with Roadrunner where you'll help them out with promotion and, and, and translations and, and bios and things. I couldn't recall that I had a contract, you know, it's, by the way, it's still like today. Mostly I do business beside of my Sony business. Uh, when I was working there as an employee and also with another company afterwards, I was always working some kind of freelance business. It's, it happened. Yeah. It's happened yeah, that yeah. I'm, I'm always there at the right place at the right time. People were asking me, can you help? And I'm always, you know, helpful trying to put all my, emphasis into it trying to get all my contacts and then somehow it works out and i get a paycheck for it so it happens with roadrunner mm-hmm. i was happy at that time to have a kind of monthly income and my task at roadrunner they they were developing i also got asked by case uh, you know we have a, a box of cassettes i listen to them maybe you should do it as well well what do you think about this because you're listening to it also for for the magazines Maybe you should have, have a listen to. So I went home from uh, Amsterdam with a two and a half hour ride. And I was listening to these demo tapes on the way back home. And then I was calling the next day and say, oh, I would suggest this one and that. And I remember really at that time, there was one demo when I was calling, I don't know, it was Case or Louis at the day after and say, this is a band we really should focus on. And this was the four... The, the band, which later became Sanctuary, but I, they were called different name at that time. I don't know, do not recall how they were called in, at, at the, as a demo band, yeah? And uh, it was, I'm sure it was not just because of me listening to this demo, but uh, they, be, they got a record contract and released uh, the first album at Roadrunners at that time. I'm trying to find what, uh, what it was. Well, that's good though. So you effectively had like an uh, an A and R function as well. In a in a way, yeah. In a way. In a way, <laughs> which later led on to these kind of compilations that were coming as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
<laughs> and what's it, who was your favorite band to work with at that time I, I, for the road run a lot because i saw you had a, a king diamond promo which you, you drafted up as well yeah as yeah yeah yeah. yeah um you know it's initially it was just the writing and then the first bands were coming over to to europe for kind of promotional trips they had some english shows and there's some or actually some english interviews and then they were sent to germany and suddenly i was asked can you work with these people can you take them around yeah can you go to different cities to you know the, to do the metal hammer to go to to bravo magazine in munich which was the biggest youth magazine and can you do this and that and i said okay why not you know i had some spare time as a student it's much easier so that took him around and i remember actually the first trips i did for case was with jethorp of shroomos okay. we're still friends until today it was a digital dictator album and it was nice trip and it was lizzie borden <laughs> Oh, wow. And with Lizzie, I remember a, quite a funny story. You know, he always played the wild man in, in the videos and also on the artworks, you know, with the axe and all the blood. And I thought, this must be a total cool guy. Yeah? So we, <laughs> we had a photo session in, in Munich at a, another youth magazine called Pop Rocky. And we went there. So he got all his makeup. Lizzie had a, has, until today, he got problem with his skin. You know, he had, he had a very dry skin. Right. I don't know if it's called of neurodermitis or something like this. Yeah. So he always had problems or something. Okay. And so he went into the makeup and, you know, had a great photo session. And later on, I went next to him. So I got photos while he was dressed up. And next to me, I had also some curly long hair at that time. So it was really one of my rock star photos. I actually had this. I remember I had this big, big sunglasses, the same one John Bon Jovi had. They were from Porsche. So this was <laughs> quite funny. Yeah. So we went there and we had to stay overnight in Munich, of course, uh, since we couldn't go back. And uh, we, we, we went out to the city and then I saw at a sex store, there was a kind of signing session with the, at that time, number one porn star in the world called Ginger Lynn. She was the ultimate porn star at that time. Don't ask me how I knew that. So she was there <laughs> the next day for a signing session. And I said to Lizzie, wouldn't it be cool to do a photo session with the number one porn star? And I thought, maybe there's a cool thing, yeah? And he said, I know her, she's from LA, but he was somehow really afraid to go there. So he was a kind of shy guy, yeah? So he's a wild man on stage, but in personal life, he was quite, <laughs> let's say, shy in a way. Yeah? Yeah, so yeah. this was quite funny. But these two promo, promo trips with the two guys were were my first moment when I, you know, had the chance to to go out with artists. The next one I had was different, was with Hawkwind. Wow. They had released an album, at least the one which was with, with Roadrunner at that time. I do not recall the name and I do not recall. I don't think it was a big success, but I had to go with Hawkwind uh, mm -hmm. to, to radio, uh, which was also quite nice. And then the next thing, I think this was 87, I had the Motorhead King Diamond Destruction Tour. Wow. And I, I was on this tour for a couple of shows. Yeah. And this was quite cool going out with Lemmy to also to Bravo magazine and uh, also with, with Kim King to, to magazines. Yeah. This was quite a good thing. But this was really actually also already let's say at the later part of my Roadrunner days. Yeah. Because I I thought that the, the tasks I was getting were getting more intense and I really right. was suffering at my daily student days. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I, 
I, you know, the, 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 the exams, some of them I didn't succeed. Um, I had to restart one of the courses again. I really was on the border. Should I continue or not? So this was something right. where the first thing I thought, maybe it couldn't be, do it, I couldn't do it all my life. While at the same time, Case wanted to have more for my time. Yeah. So this okay. was, I felt that there will be a break to come. Right. Okay. Okay. I'm just trying to find the Hawkwind album that we're referring to. Live Chronicles, it appears. Could be, yeah. Could be. Yeah. I, that's the one that's on Roadrunner, but it's interesting because it's, it's got the record. It's a GWR record, but it has the Roadrunner logo marketed by. That's quite interesting. But yeah. Okay. Let's let's get on to the Teutonic invasion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the good ones. I, I I really like the cover of the the first. I'm a big fan of the cover of the first one. The second one looks like a um, there's a magazine in the UK called Viz, and it's like a it's like a comedy it's like a comedy magazine, and the art style is very similar. Uh, but I resonate with the first album cover a lot more because <clears throat> it looks like a it looks like a Warhammer. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So yeah. the the story was, you know, I had this uh, boxes of demos which I was taking with me all the time, and right. uh, Case was asking, you know, you know, all these kind of German bands, and being a writer, um, you get to know even more bands. Uh, we're planning to extend our label business more into Germany. I don't know if you really said it this way, but I think this was the way it was meant to be. Right. Maybe we could do. Or maybe you could fight us some bands. I didn't know the word A and R that time, so I was kind of talent seeker, and so I took the demos back home and I was listening to all the demos he got. I got demos which I had already, bands I knew from whatever showcases around the world, and uh, so we put on a list which bands we could put on this compilation, and um, I recall that you know I proposed these bands. Some of them I knew personally because there was a band from, from Dortmund called Kraus, which I knew from their, uh, you know, from the rehearsal room. Mm -hmm. There was a band Poison, but not that Poison from, from LA, but it was more like a black metal band. Yeah. And Violent Force, who later at least became a bit more popular. And there was a band called Paradox. And this yeah. band from uh, the southern part of Germany, they really had a great demo at that time and uh, this was a band case was really focusing on and uh, we said okay let's do first we're gonna start with this compilation teutonic invasion actually i think the name was coming from my end i do not recall i don't want to uh, take it totally for me and uh, he came up with the artwork this was i don't know from where the artwork was coming from it was his idea and uh, the next thing I remember is that he asked me, can you organize all the tapes? And at that time, we're talking about tapes, you know, the big ones. Yeah. yeah. Not MP3s or something. Yeah. And can you collect them for us? And we need to, to, uh, to make a contract with them. And I said, okay, I never made a contract. I don't have a contract with Roadrunner. So what should we do? Yeah, I'm going to send you. And the next thing, and I think this when Ed came into the into the perspective, I got signed a contract, which a record contract at that time from a record company was maybe 30 pages in English with lots of lots of words I've never seen in my life. Neither in English nor in German. 
So I got this package, which was a standard record contact Roadrunner. And I thought I could not copy it. Of course, I could do it and send it to bands, but they will ask me questions I couldn't answer because I do not understand it. What can I do? And somehow, and this is a funny thing, which I remembered on our previous conversations, my parents, who had a great network in, in Dortmund at that time, also with business people, um, they had a friend who was head of the, the local bank. And uh, he had a secretary. She was really good in languages. And uh, we know her. At that time, my parents and me, we were playing tennis. We were at our local tennis club. So actually, I was also the first guy not playing in a white shirt, but in a metal shirt doing my <laughs> tennis match. This was in the mid-80s. That was even... You know, before Andre Agassi, it was quite unusual to have a non-white shirt on a tennis court. Yeah, so but I was one with playing with muscle shirt and so on. This was quite funny. <laughs> but this woman, she was a secretary of the bank guy. She offered, "I will translate this for you." A thirty-page contract. So, so she did it. She never, you know, she, she was not experienced in record language, but somehow she did this contract, and I don't know how, why. I managed to get all these eight bands with a signature of the contract on this album. And it was promoted everywhere. Rock Heart was the sponsor, mm -hmm. uh, the media partner on this uh, album. Actually, here's the logo of Rock Heart. And it was promoted and it was a flop. It was, you know, I don't know the figures, but, you know, really nobody took place because the, the recordings were quite awful. It was demos, yeah? yeah? So nothing really, nothing comparable to all these US bands. But there was one band, Paradox, which Case liked. And yeah. he said, we're going to do a full album with them. So we picked this band, sent them to Münster, which is a bit north of Dortmund, to record a full album at Caro Studios. Right. And... Um, there was a producer called Kalle Trapp. He was quite experienced working with German newcomer bands and they recorded, I don't know in which time period they recorded the full album. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went there a couple of times to see how it's going because I felt responsible for the guys. Sure. And they were already booked for some shows with Halloween and Overkill who were touring afterwards, a German okay. tour. Yeah. And they played some shows with them. Yeah, that was a good start for the band. And they became kind of a speed metal sensation, but I recall also a second album, which came a bit after my period, but then they got some, the singer and guitar player, Charlie, he got some health problems and the band split up and they were reformed and split up again. And so they really never made it on a big scale, but they were one of the, let's say one of the better bands, which were coming from this, thing so this was 87 and uh i had a, in the summer of 87 i had a really um dramatic week because i before in i was on on vacation with my then girlfriend and we, we had a on off relation for four years so it was in net we had a four-year relation but uh you know, it was always so one of those, one, one of those. Yeah. <laughs> so we had a, let's say we had a booked a holiday. I think it was in Greece on an, uh, in Crete Island on a, on a resort. And we thought this should be the holiday where we finally get together. It was worse. It was the opposite. Yeah. She, <laughs> she met another guy. They didn't have a relation, but you know, it was, it all fell apart afterwards. 
at the same time, in the same week, I was uh, I was told by the university that I failed one exam second time. And if I had to go to an oral exam, and if I fail it, I would lose my my or everything I, I have achieved so far. Yeah. And I had to go to the uh, to the head of uh, the university, who was my professor at that time, and he was the most conservative guy I met in my life. And at that time, I had uh, jeans with uh, holes. I had long curly hair. I was more looking like a hair metal rock star at that time, sure. not too thrashy. But uh, it was crazy. And and the next thing was that um, this this magazine I was working for also next to Rock Hard Crash, which let's say a poser magazine. Okay. This magazine made a fusion with Madeline because the publishing company actually saw that with their own magazine they couldn't go further, so they bought Metal Hammer. So and they made a fusion of both magazines. It was Metal oh. Hammer Crash at that time, yeah. Yeah. And I was asked, um, are you writing for us? Yeah. And I said, I will never do. I, I couldn't play for your team because I'm from the other team. I wouldn't do there. So <laughs> within one week, I had to decide what should I do with my study? What should I do with my girlfriend? And what should I do with my magazine? Yeah. With my writing. So it has been, had to be decided almost within a couple of days. So I cut off my hair. I went with the most conservative uh, outfit to this professor and I passed the exam. I was successful. Nobody believed that I could do this. And the, on the way out, so I had my, it's called pre-diploma. And on the way out from this room, I said, I got it. Finally, I had this, let's say, first of two steps I had achieved. But this was actually the last day I ever went into this building. So I, across this campus, there was this kind of, um, how's it called? It's, it's not university. It's kind of, uh, a, it's a university of applied science. It's a special school for, for a economics. Fac a faculty. Awesome. It's a faculty, yeah. So I went there. I said, listen, I just passed the exam. I have the pre-diploma. Can you help me? And they said, yes, of course. I had already some friends being at that uh, faculty come to us. Yeah. So they, this was a good start on the one hand mm -hmm. with a magazine. I decided I should rather calm down a bit. And with, uh, with my girlfriend, that was, was it for two years. Then we came back together again for medium time and then we split finally luckily it was better for the both of us we're still in good terms but uh it was good that uh, at that time we we stopped yeah we went different paths and it was good but in between i was uh having this unbelievable offer from case who really tried to to involve me even more into his kind of business yeah and he was asking me if i would be willing to run a german office for roadrunner so I was 20, 21, 22, 22 already at that time. And uh, he told me, listen, we have these two biggest magazines uh, in Dortmund. You know some media people already from radio, from even bigger youth magazines. So you're working for us now for two years. Why don't you have a full-time job with us? So forget about your stu studies. We'll hire you a secretary and you run our office for us. Yeah. Oh, wow. And I really thought, how cool would this be? And I thought already me sitting in leather boots 
on a on a on a big desk, having a beer, having a big boob secretary helping me on everything, <laughs> and being the ambassador of Roadrunner in Germany. And I really liked this idea. I really I gave it a big big thought, <laughs> but uh, somehow I decided not to do it because I thought it's not right. You know, I, you, I wanted to have this degree. I wanted to work in the music industry and a, let's say on a big label. Roadrunner was a good start for me, but I really didn't want to make this step. And the next thing what was happened that I finished at least to do the second compilation, Tonic Evasion Part 2. And actually, you're right, the artworks look different. And I remember we had discussion because this was a flop, so we couldn't Just do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had to do it different. And what I thought, while naming it Teutonic Invasion, I had the idea of these Asterix comics. <laughs> when the little Gallic guys, or actually when the Romans came coming to the Gallic village. Yeah. And, you know, people being throwing around. So this is actually the, the scene when the metalheads are coming to the yuppies in you know you have these yeah. well-dressed people doing a concert and then you have these metal people coming into this uh, place yeah so this is actually the artwork so we had also a bunch of other bands on it some of them came they came a bit more popular afterwards especially mm -hmm. pestilence which were yeah. part dutch part german uh who became a big bigger afterwards but i think i left this was in April 88. And yeah. I think this was one of my last jobs I had with Roadrunner. Do you know if it sold well? Sorry? Do you know if this one sold well? No. Okay. No. Do you remember who did the um, the cover for this one? Who was who, who drew it? Because for what it's worth, it is, it's a busy piece of artwork, isn't it? Yes. Yes. It was a guy called Volker Heser. Actually, I do not recall. I think he was doing artworks also for other bands in Germany, but I do not recall how how this was put together. This is you know actually what? he is on Discogs, yeah. Yeah, Volkerhäuser. Mixed by Calais again. Calais Trap. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So it's all that's good right. stock. Every, the li everything's lined up quite nicely for these records in terms of the personnel involved. But I guess it's one of those things where if it's just demos of bands and you're kind of just feeling it out, maybe it's not quite got the quality behind it. That say actually the the early Metal Massacre albums, which was you know, which was the let's say the the original equivalent to this, where Metal Blade started, and even Shrapnel had this U.S. Metal records. Yeah, so this was the Roadrunner German version of it. So this was yeah, the whole yeah. idea behind it. Don't spend too much money. Because Case at that time, I knew already by myself, he was not throwing after the money to, to people and to lots of uh, stuff. So it had to be cheap. But it was at least that from each album, one band at least made it afterwards a bit. So yeah. it was uh, Pestilence from the second one. And it was Paradox on the first one. Yeah, I mean, from a... Uh... From an A&R perspective, you there were more rewards from your input than most A&R people get in a lifetime. So you got to think of it that yes. way, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. So when you had to make the decision, you, had, you obviously you obviously had to reprioritize and go, well, I have to get my degree. I have to study. I have to do these things. 
Do you regret that decision now or are you, are you fairly satisfied that it was the right path to take? No, because it was decided then later on that this uh, Roadrunner office had to be moved to Cologne mm -hmm. because Cologne was a much bigger media city while at the same time Metal Hammer moved to Munich because they were bought by this other publishing company. So Rock Art was only left in Dortmund and uh, the Cologne office was um, opened up Together with Alexandra, uh, I know her. She was the former manager of uh, San Francisco-based band Legacy, later became Testament. Yeah. And she was handling the, uh, let's say, the European F office for the band. She was, uh, she was working with flight companies. I remember she was with Pan Am and with British Air, I think. Right. And uh, she, uh, she was also flying. I think she was also flighted. And so she went to the States quite often time. That's why she got in contact with the band. And she got offered to to get this promotional job for Roadrunner. And actually, she was not the head of this office. She was there mm -hmm. together with her secretary, Heidi. And uh, But they were running the office. And at least they, do, they had a business. So Cologne was closer to the Dutch border than Dortmund. So they were, let's say, one hour uh, closer to, to Amsterdam. I think Leo was also involved in a way for the, the, the big artists, also as a TV promoter, so to say. But for me, it was in 88, I already really focused on finalizing my, my degree. Mm -hmm. And I was stepping out of it because I left rock hard as well. Uh, since I, I thought I should make a break with a lot of stuff. So well, for one year, I wasn't writing at all. I was fed up with because I was, you know, trying to set up my other things. Funnily, I had a Scorpions show in, in, in Dortmund in 88. I, I met some people whom I knew were ex-Metal Hammer people whom I knew right. from, from my Roadrunner days. And they were telling me, you know, we have Metal Hammer. They, you know, they are now with this big publishing company, but people who work there, they think about a new magazine. It will be looking different. It will be more like on, on, on newspaper paper, like the NME was at that time and, you know, should be big size and, mm -hmm. Are you, you know, you don't write anymore? I said, no, I don't want. Yeah, you know, you should do. We, we have a new concept. Uh, we have rock on the one hand. You know, the, the magazine was called Shark, like the fish, Shark. Yeah. Music that bites. And we have all kind of, let's say, underground genres. We have rock metal on the one hand. We have electronic music. We have hip hop. Yeah. And you know, we have different kind of specialists and we want you to work. It's a magazine in Dortmund. Can you work for us? And I said, okay, maybe a few times, maybe once a week or so I come over. So that's why I started again, a bit of working for magazine. Right. Even I, I quit it already, but this was not that full-time emphasis I had before. And then in 1990, I finished my, my studies. Uh, it was, let's say, around the, the time when Germany won the World Cup in Rome against one zero nil against Argentina. I finished my studies and uh, then I moved to the big ones. I moved to Sony Music. Right. How did that experience differ then based on what you were doing with Roadrunner and freelancing? Was yeah, it a complete it a, change of pace? Complete change. You know, it was at that time one of the biggest record. Actually, at that time, it was all still CBS Records. At that time, it was not... They were already bought by the Japanese guys, but it mm -hmm. was still... Uh, called CBS Records. And my first contract was a CBS Records contract. Right. I was junior product manager for marketings. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
of course, you know, was a big company here in Frankfurt. That's why I moved from Dortmund to Frankfurt, where I'm still living yeah. for 31 years now. And, uh, you know, was a skyscraper. Frankfurt is a at least a total different city than, than Dortmund. Uh, Dortmund is an industrial, at that time, it was an industrial city with uh, less business-oriented uh, people at that time. And Frankfurt, you know, you had all the banks. It was like a little Manhattan, at, even at that time. Still today, of course, you have the big buildings and the Sony building at that time was also a little skyscraper. Mm. I had my own office from the beginning. And uh, the funny thing I remember is that until today, I have a really bad handwriting. So when I write right. something down with my little pen, <clears throat> it looks really awful. And uh, I was asking, can I have a computer? Because I was used to work with a computer at that time in 1990 because I was doing my, my bachelor thesis on a computer. So at that time, I was really um, used to work with a computer. I had my bachelor thesis on a, on a computer. It was a very one of the early ones, uh, computers you, you could have. But I was asking, can I use my own computer? And they said, yes, if you want to bring, or even if you have your printer, you can do it, yeah. So I, I recall that at that time, communication work that you write um, on a piece of paper to somebody with a type machine or with your computer or handwritten. Then you place this letter into a letter box in your office. There was a guy coming twice a day with a rolling, with a rolling car to pick up his letters, bring it to the telex office. Then it was Telefax to the other company. Maybe they, he's bringing the replies from yesterday already, and then it was 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 brought back to your letterbox. So that's why how communication started, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, the company was much bigger. We had about four hundred people working for Sony CBS Records at that sure. time. And the day I came, it was uh, August 20, nineteen ninety. Uh, there was a external meeting for my department because the department I was working for was called concept or special marketing later on, but it was uh, sometimes departments like this were called strategic marketing. Mm -hmm. So we were not involved in releasing new albums by new bands. So it was not, no A&R business, but we were taking the music, which has been already released and put them together on a thematic umbrella. So right, like okay. the hits packages or like uh, music from the 60s or whatever. And this company, especially this department I was working for, they had a huge success for three years with a rock ballad compilation, which has been already in the market. And this compilation was um, a, a triple album. Yeah, wow. So, one, two, three. Ooh. Triple album which was called Kuschelrock. Kuschelrock. If you want oh, to wow. translate it, Kuschel is if you hug, if you cuddle somebody. And this was a, <laughs> this was a you know, a, a, a couple. We had some, you know, ballads everybody knows from the late, mainly from the late 80s. There were some rock songs on it, like uh, Great Pretender by Freddie Mercury, Elton John, Phil Collins, Genesis, uh, 10CC, 
Europe. And some, let's say, pop ballads like Through the Barricades from Spandau Ballet, Glory of Love from Peter Cetere and so on. So not really rock based. Yeah. Mm. But this one was a big success and sold about a million copies, which was the overnight sensation. The first wow. one before my time. The I second did. one. Curl Rock is better. just cracking me up. That's amazing. That's it. That should be a genre. The second one so. was a bit higher. And the third one was one five. So it was really, really successful. And the guy who was handling this department, who was also co-inventing this series, which was named after a radio show uh, in Germany, he wanted to have more, but he couldn't go further. He was not the, the head of the company. He was somewhere in the third line. Okay. So he decided to leave the company to form his own one with some investors from uh, actually from the UK, Telstar who were quite big in the compilation business at that time in the late 80s. And he formed his own company called Eurostar, and he was trying to make it all in his own. Fast forward, I think two years later, he went bankrupt because it was not running. He, was, he didn't have his own repertoire, and this is crucial to, to fill the, the records as well. Yeah. So there was a big hole in this uh, company, and they were looking for some new guys, some wild guys. And they were looking some of, for some experienced marketing guys from CBS. So I was feeling somehow into the concept that I had uh, not only this kind of rock and metal experience, also always doing uh, cassettes with the best rock ballads for my then ex-girlfriend. So I had tons of rock ballads uh, from all these bands. But I was always uh, looking, especially afterwards, uh, for girls who were not really the metal girls because those are the ones I didn't like that much. I was looking more for the disco girls. So I went to the local discotheque in Dortmund and actually my best friend was a DJ there. Mm -hmm. And I always tried at least to get accommodated with the music which was being played there. Some new wave, some pop, some black stuff. So I was quite open to other music and i was always looking oh what what's this band called okay which label is it okay motown okay what artist okay on the front cover okay so i was quite experienced also in other kind of genres cool. so i came there on the 28th of august and this was one of the last days where the next um volume of this series number four should have been finished and on that day there was a telefax coming in into this meeting room by the management of the Rolling Stones that they have approved Angie. And this was a sensation at that time because the Stones usually don't um, approve compilations. So this was my starting day. Um, the repertoire was almost selected, but I took some final hands on the artwork and as well on the tracking list. So there were some more rock bands already. I think it was Whitesnake already on it and so on. So. To cut a long story short, within the, the time periods from the volume four to volume, volume three to volume four, Germany has opened the borders. It was 1990. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were 20 million new consumers looking for music. And oh, wow. this was actually the first album which New Germany was offered. And this was selling like hell, 2.8 million. And this wow. was my first record. I put little touches on but it moved me into a new dimension and i initially i thought oh no if this works why shouldn't i do all these tape concepts what what i had before mm. should work on record so i i started to invent new brands 
which were not, you know, this one, the, the rock ballads con compilation was already existing, but I developed different kind of concept. It was 80s compilation, which was new. When you take a look, being in 1990, there was no 80s compilation before, sure, which was yeah. old compiling. Yeah? I did music to, to, you know, to relax or to chill out. Even the word was not existing at that time. Music to party, music to Christmas, Easter, summer, winter, Uh, music with artists starting with an A or whatever. So it was lots of concept I, and it was a great fun. And I, I really make a, made a rise from, let's say, being junior product manager at the end, being managing director of this whole, of a company with 35 people. So it yeah. was quite a big move for me throughout the years. And I totally lost the metal way, I must really say. There were only a few bands which I still followed when they were on tour, Um You know, when Metallica played or Maiden played, I went there. But, uh, you know, I was not really, I was not backstage. I was not working with the artists. Yeah. So I was happy to to see that some of them were still alive. But this was not that much interest of me in these periods from 1990 to 2003. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I, like I said, cuddle rock should be its own genre. That is such, such as... I don't know what it is. It just cracks me up. But it's, it, you're completely right. It's, it, it is a thing. It's absolutely an articulated angle you can take music down. But no, that's, that's... The good thing is with Cuddle Rock at that time was that it was, you know, 1990, <clears throat> the, the position of a girl in a, in a relation was not that offensive as it was later on. The girls didn't have tattoos at that time. The hookers mm. had native tattoos, but not the normal girls you meet at the disco. Yeah, so the man still was the hero in a relation. Yeah, and the girl was yeah. just the, you know, the little one. So we really focused on how to position these couples on the artwork. So really make a big, big market research. Yeah, we we try to think: should he, you know, can he sit on her, or does she sit on him or are they in front of the, a campfire or are they in front of a waterfall so it were all like fairy tales and so the commercials were like this yeah when i went to because it was such a success it went also to other territories there was uh, a, the equivalent in the benelux uh, which were was more or less the same And there was also some other territories who were looking like this i remember that my turkish colleague they also released this album under the name Kuschelrock, so with the dots on it, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, but the English colleagues, for instance, yeah, my colleagues from the UK who were also quite quite successful in this world marketing world, they refused it to sell it with this name and with this brand, yeah, because I said we cannot do it. We need to have a typewriting on it, and we don't want to have a black and white couple on the front, yeah. Mm. It's too cheesy for us. We have to do it other way yeah and sure, they okay. mostly failed with their concepts yeah it was didn't work out that well yeah so my the concept which i was working um it at least you know got me to the position where that i've been let's say one of the most successful departments worldwide this actually was the biggest music brand at that time all in mm -hmm. all in my period it sold 30 million copies That's crazy. Um, which was quite big. I went to international conferences, even outside Europe, where I was, you know, presented to, I went to a Latin American conference where I was, should present the secret of success. 
So I was a bit nervous. I presenting you know, when I was presenting in English, of course, in English. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, presentation with a lot of markets research and lots of business background and everything. So I went there to this Latin American conference and I met I'm, some people I knew before from other conferences, some of them I didn't know. So I was thrown into this room and I needed to start the next day. But the first day the uh, Latin people were presenting and of course they were speaking only Spanish and I didn't understand any words. Sure. So I was thinking, what the hell should I do here when I do when I do my presentation in English? But somehow they said, yeah, nice, nice. Thank you. Thank you very much. I don't know what they got from it, mm. but it was nice being in West Palm Beach at a nice golf resort for four days with a, with a limousine got picked up from Miami Airport. This was really I felt like a rock star at that time. It, it, you know, the interesting like analogy of how stretches here. You've, so you've, you were talking about on the Cuddle Rock, you had to do some racket research because there was like, there's a, a sort of a, a disconnect, not disconnect. There was just a different position in which a, a woman would be in a relationship. And that's kind of what the demographic you were playing to. So the things that you were dis, the, the things you were thinking of and the, the, tr the, the logic you were trying to apply to sell this album and make it reach its potential is probably exactly what Case was doing for metal. He was probably going, what do metal heads like? Well, they've got quite fantastical sort of like, um, they're quite fantastical visionaries. So maybe we need like a giant Norse guy with a sword. And maybe we need him to be carrying some skulls on a on horseback. And that's what came up with the, the Teutonic Invasion cover. You know what I mean? I, I, I just find that, I love that kind of, that meta yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I never thought about this, but you you may be right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's nothing in it. Even if Cuddle Rock is a hilarious term, <laughs> it's all it was all building to something. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. But what it's how did you get so how do you get from Sony to here then? Who did you work for between between yeah, two thousand three, you say? Yeah, two thousand three yeah. I, I left Sony Music. Um I got the chance afterwards, I moved back. Actually, you know, Sony Music, I, I, I worked until 2000. Uh, for the first 10 years, I lived in Frankfurt. Um, mm -hmm. I met my wife, I founded my family. Uh, and uh, after 10 years, Sony moved to Berlin on, mm -hmm. on the Potsdam place and right in the center of the new Berlin. Okay. I went to the Sony center and um, I was asked if I will go with the company and they got another race, another position and so on. I said, yeah, go. I put my whole family, little children, including my mother-in-law. We went to Berlin and uh, it was a quite, quite experience. I liked it because it was also a big city. Everything was new. Everything was reconstructed and I loved it. While my wife was left at home with two little children and she had to take around kindergarten school and everything to organize soccer club and, and whatever. Yeah. While I was doing really good business, flying around the world, I was in London quite a few times, mm. sometimes uh, three, three times within 14 days to be at the European headquarter office in Soho to, to talk about new concepts and trying to, to get this market research vein into the European structure and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, But the day I got sent home when I was called by my rock hard friend uh, and, asked and told my wife, darling, we, you know, we got some time. This is, you know, it's a paycheck and we got the yeah. year off. What, what we should do. She immediately said, I want to go back to Frankfurt because she is from Frankfurt and she had all her friends there. So more or less we sold our house for the same price we bought it for. Mm -hmm. 
and moved everything to Frankfurt. And within one year, so we went there to Frankfurt once again. I had a job offer at that time by Atari to go to the games industry, which was quite hot at that time. And um, for some reason, they decided to go for an internal uh, position and not taking an outside candidate. And so this was off. And the funny thing is that after that, I got contacted by a, um, a video company, which was based again in Dortmund. <laughs> and this guy was an independent film producer and he had some original DVDs he released so far with uh, maybe mainly Asian uh, movies and Latin movies. So, so he, was, he said, I couldn't compete with the Hollywood uh, movies, so I get to, had to go to special markets. And he had some Asian horror movies, which was selling quite good, like like the original uh, movie, The Ring, you know, the the, yeah, you know, yeah. the later version, but there was the original version. I think it was a Japanese movie and yeah. some movies like this. But this guy, who was a rich industrial, uh, industrial guy, uh, industrial business guy. He want, always wanted to to have a music label around. And it was a lucky incident that I got contacted. I, I was born in Dortmund, so that's what he liked. But they had this Sony business uh, background, so he hired me for to form a music video label. Yeah. So the first thing I, I said, listen, I've been to this rock art festival last year. I met some people who are also doing festivals. Let's try to find if they got some video rights. So because they were recording the festivals, I knew already from the Sony days how to clear rights, how to get contracts, uh, how to you know get permissions from publishing companies. So we we released some videos from concerts, uh, from festivals, also individual um, concerts, which uh, I have produced. I'm sorry, got the message right. here. And um, I also released a live DVD with the San Francisco, San Francisco band Y&T and also a live DVD with Foreigner mm -hmm. and some other bands. And uh, so it was quite nice for four years, but I felt it's not good to, to work weekdays in Dortmund, still living again with my parents, by the way, my in the same children's room where I started Rock Art magazine many, many years ago, while my family then with older children is still based in Frankfurt. And so mm -hmm. I, I quitted this company. Luckily, half a year before it went bankrupt because wow. this crazy entrepreneur, he spent all this money on the wrong side. So I moved back to Frankfurt and uh, got the chance to then work as a freelancer for a music TV station here in Frankfurt who were trying to be the new MTV, but they were too late. And on the other hand, they were too early for online music television yeah, yeah. at that time. But this was where I started being initially being the marketing guy. Then I was uh, finding that there were some people who wanted to advertise on this channel, like like Nuclear Blast as a label. And they were asking if we're going to spend some thousand euro on, on advertising on your channel, would you air the videos from our bands? I said, of course. And then next thing was, let's do a metal show. Let's do a metal clip show like Headbangers Ball. Oh, we need a host. Nobody's hosting it here. I'm doing it. So I went in front of the camera. I was hosting bands, yeah? And then next thing was, oh, there's this metal cruise. What we should do? I said, let's do, let's air the commercial. We're going to produce a TV commercial for this cruise. And then next thing was, 
let's go to the cruise. Okay, <laughs> all six of us, camera, producer, and so on, let's go to Miami on this $70,000 metal cruise. Oh, who's hosting it? I do. So that's why I went in front of the camera because I knew lots of these bands right. and I was hosting the show. And all in all, it was six years from 2008, 2014. And afterwards, it was business here, business there. I was involved with, on the one hand, I would really say in a nutshell, since my days with this, actually days with this, even in the Roadrunner days and even in my Sony days and even afterwards with the video company, I was always connected with music, with artists, with festivals, with labels, with everything related around the music, mm -hmm. mainly rock, but also other music genres. And on the other side, I was connected with brands, with advertisers, with corporate companies, and they wanted to be cool. So they needed the music to look cool, to make their product more shiny. Yeah. And I was somehow managing the process in the middle. Until today, uh, and nowadays, of course, I built my own brand, which is called The Block of Rock, my podcast, <laughs> um, which I'm running now for, for a year with 80 episodes. And this is my brand. I have a sponsor, so... I'm doing some kind of business for it right now. Mm -hmm. But in my daily job, I'm working for a big concert promoter here in Germany who is doing the biggest festival for electronic music. And uh, I'm doing the brand partnership means I'm, I'm calling for sponsors. This was mm. quite a good job until last year before COVID started. I had huge liquor companies, breweries, finance companies, uh, which... For them, these kinds of festivals, you know, having DJs playing in a stadium with 50,000 people had the same energy, same feeling like me going to Monsters of Rock back in the 80s. It's a different mm. kind of music, but it's somehow comparable. Yeah. 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 And uh, so I'm still connected with these brands for the moment. Of course, uh, we cannot really plan for the next event. We originally planned to do the next event in, in June, but we already postponed it to September. So for the moment, we don't know it's going to happen or not. But I'm talking to the clients. They are quite optimistic. And even it will not take place this year, we're going to strike a deal also for next year. So this, let's say, business world mm. to, to connect the dots between advertisers and artists on the other side, this is somehow my life for almost 40 years now. That's crazy. It's one of those life well lived kind of stories. The thing is that uh, I always thought in between, would it, would it have been much better for me if I would, after my, my university days, if I would have done a regular job? Yeah, of course, Sony Music was a marketing job, but it was also something really outstanding yeah so i was the only one worldwide taking care of cuddle rock yeah so there was no one there was no second guy doing it mm -hmm. yeah for 13 years time so it was when i went out in frankfurt big city big discotheques big bars and i met girls and of course what are you doing what you're doing and you know i started to explain what i'm doing yeah i was head of marketing i was casting 
the, the models. I was selecting the repertoire, doing the market research. I was spending millions, millions of advertising on TV for this compilation. Yeah. yeah. So it was quite an interesting thing to get in touch with the girls. And what I always did is that I said, listen, this market research we do with a peer group. So it was not online at that time. We're sending out tapes to 3000 consumers. They needed to make remarks, how they like this cassettes or not. I said, but the best thing always is <clears throat> to have a one and one and one test. So I would like to invite you to my personal kosher rock test. So come to my place. I cook for you. We're going to listen to the songs. And if we cuddle, then we take the song. So that's how I met my wife 27 years ago. <laughs> that's amazing. Yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. I can't, uh, I can't knock the tactic. <laughs> was um, selecting a red shirt um, today, was that by design, knowing you were talking about Roadrunner? Um, I think it was a lucky incident. Um, the shirt was actually uh, um, a, a shirt which I designed some weeks ago uh, at a, a print-on-demand company, which mm. normally print a logo on a on a black shirt, maybe also on a white shirt. But then they offered this kind of uh, squared one, uh, which. Like a, it actually looks like a grunge shirt a bit, like a, like a flannel pattern, yeah. flannel one. Yeah, that's right. And I thought I will take my, which is a bit hidden here, my block of rock star, which is my logo, became a star in a way. <laughs> I want to stitch it on, and it took me four versions until they finally printed my <laughs> the correct logo on it. So they always <laughs> printed something else which I didn't send to them. Another band, yeah. So the, yeah. what went went wrong? But then I had it, and this is actually my my interview outfit. I had an interview with another band before you called me, and that's yeah. why I had my typical outfit on. And I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's a nice shirt, and maybe I'll do some merchandising of it. I don't know. It's a, let's like a sheriff star, so to say. Yeah, yeah. what I'm uh, trying to do. Uh, so what's your, your most fond memory about Roadrunner? Um. I wouldn't say it was fun at that time when I experienced this, but it's, this is a, my most remarkable story. It was the first origin visit I had to the uh, office in the Van Ehrenstraat after I went initially with, with Leo Lanz on the first time with his car. But this was my first trip on my own. So I needed to figure out to go. I've, I've been to Amsterdam before, but I needed to go figure out how to, to get to this office. So I had no, you know, at that time you don't have a navigation system. So I had these maps to find it, how to go there. And I had a, a Ford Fiesta at that time. Uh, this was my mother's car, which I took over. She got a new car and I got her old one. And um, I was lucky to park in front of the office of Roadrunner. Quite, this was a Big streets, uh, lots of office houses, and you already showed some some photos of the old uh, building in, in your, one of your videos. And this was a time in 85 when in my place, at least in Dortmund, I don't know how, how it was elsewhere, it was a quite cool thing to have a special jeans jacket, which was made of old trousers, including some leather patches. So there were, there were uh, a tailor in Dortmund 
you you brought him old jeans, you brought him old leather, and he cut it a jacket. So I had a really, really cool jacket at that time. It was a unique. It, there was no other like this, yeah? So it was like a jeans jacket, leather patch here, some suede there, and it was quite cool. Mm. But I left this jacket in the car, on the back of the car. So I had a meeting with Roadrunner, and I wanted to go home. I had my demos with me, and I wanted to go to the car and went to my, my, my door, and I thought, why are there some diamonds on the other seat? And then I realized, shit, somebody had thrown in my window and he was stealing my jacket. And my, I think, no, not only the jacket, not the car stereo, just the jacket. And I thought, shit, what I should do. It was the first time I needed to go to the police in a different city. So I went with Louis to the local police office, you know, try to claim because nobody see that has seen anything so i need a, a i called my parents what should i do insurance blah 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 so i took a report from police and I had to go home with the window which was thrown in it was luckily it was summer so right. they put some plastic on this so i needed to go home with a broken car and without my jacket and i remember i was so pissed about this because nobody could you know i was pissed about myself because i was i was the one to blame i left the jacket in the back of the car and some junkie wanted to steal it somehow yeah i was so pissed that i selected the demo tapes from case and the ones what i didn't like on the way back to dortmund i didn't put back to the case but i throw them out of the window <laughs> because case told me before you know this is all shit you can listen if there's something it's fine but just keep it and throw it away. So yeah, I yeah. did it out of the car. So this is the story which I remember best from the Roadrunner days. Yeah. And I still miss this jacket. I'm not having it was quite it was also quite new. It was expensive, but it also was quite new. I don't have a picture with it. I just what recall it. Yeah, yeah. First impression of the Amsterdam office. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> So interestingly, you've actually um, you've interviewed some roadrunner acts, haven't you? Um, Blackstone Cherry were a roadrunner. Yes, yeah, but um, I interviewed them when they are now with Mascot. Yes, yes. Is that's that... why the circle is closing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. Can you, what can you remember about Louis? I don't know Louis. Um, I've not been able to track him down. You don't know if he's still around, do you? I, I was trying to find him on the internet as well. I, I, I did not succeed. He was a really funny guy. He had a really dark voice, baritone voice, I recall. He was, it's, it's, it's been mentioned all in one of your previous videos, he was more like a guy from the 70s. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it was Ed that said that, yeah. And um, he was really, really taking care of me. So he was doing promo, and I remember his... Uh, assistant or his colleague Rebecca she was on the other side she was a young girl um they were helping me a lot in this crazy thing and uh, what I also recall is every time I went to Amsterdam I needed to to take back a box of vinyl from the new releases because it was much cheaper to send them out of my of, out of Germany to German to German magazines than rather sending it from Amsterdam yeah, because of custom reasons and so on. So I always took boxes of uh, vinyls with me and I had them 
you know, to place them under the seat in the back and hopefully not getting, uh, you know, I need to do a declaration on, on the customs, which I never had. Yeah. So it was all fine. I also never got inspected for drugs or so on. So this was all good. But I remember these days when, and this was, this was also in your uh, previous videos, when the first CDs came out, it was quite new that the first releases of Roadrunner were on CDs. And at that time, a regular album CD was released in a small box. So it was not like a classical jewel box, but it was more like the, the early CD singles, which came later. So it was a small box with almost no booklet inside and no information. So it was just tiny. And Roadrunner were really the first ones to release the first uh, albums on CD. And I remember that they were really, really expensive. So I only could take a few ones with me. So with vinyls was no problem to take a box with 25 of each release with me to somehow send it to media people with lots of, um, um, lots of uh, um, material, packaging material, which I had to take with me. But CDs was only the, the high volume. Me. So I maybe took only three or four of each release with me. So this was something which was at that time, 86, 87 was quite unusual. And they were trying also, this was also something which I remember, you know, they started really, really underground, but uh, then they had some artists who were on the run to be, who could become big stars. So I remember Lizzie Borden was one of the artists where more, let's say, attraction was spent on. I don't know if there was much spending on money or videos, but this was much bigger. It was a maybe the biggest metal blade act at that time. Yeah. This was actually a, an artist. But the, the major point at that time was actually Crimson Glory. Yeah. This was a band uh, which was coming via Dan Johnson from Tampa, the producer, who came out the Sabotage, uh, you know, Sabotage family. Mm -hmm. And he had these bands with the masks with a singer, you know, they were a bit like Queensryche in a way, a bit more edgy. And this band had really something really, really special. And uh, I recall, I saw them um, at the Dynamo Club in Eindhoven, you know, where actually the Artshock was more or less founded by Metal Mike yeah. and uh, uh, his partners. And uh, this was something, this band was quite special. You know, they had this mask and while I was looking for all the stuff, which I was sending to you, I found today <laughs> a signed poster from these days with the guys wow. where I was also witnessing this photo session. And, uh, you know, it was like kiss in the seventies. You didn't, we were not allowed to see the faces. Yeah. So mm -hmm. this was something which was a mystery. Yeah. Originally they had the masks, which was, you know, full faced masks. But on stage, they had masks where the mouth was cut off to, to sing because they had a, a you know, they all had, well, all singing the, uh, the, the choir. And it was uh, too hot. Yeah, also, also, yeah. But they were not allowed to be seen, just a few ones. I was actually the one who was, uh, you know, working with them. So, of course, I know their real faces. Mm -hmm. And I was working for them a few times. And I remember that it was just on the first album, but I remember that at the end I was giving 
I was given the original mask from Midnight, the singer. Oh, cool. One of his masks. He only had a few. Mm -hmm. I was given his mask signed by him on the back to me. And this was one of my ultimate treasures you might imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Which I had. I kept. Yeah. I never wore it anywhere on Carnival. But I moved my house so many times from Frankfurt to Berlin. In Frankfurt many times. I moved it initially from Dortmund to Frankfurt, then in Frankfurt many times. Mm -hmm. Then I moved to Berlin and back. Throughout the years, you know, it cracked. Oh. And then I threw it away. Oh, no. This was unfortunate. bad. But this band was maybe the band where Case at that time in 87, he had, uh, he saw the biggest chance to become, you know, had in a worldwide media act. Yeah, but they didn't make it that big. The big, yeah. the big time of Roadrunner really came after, as you know. Yeah, I mean, Crimson Glory, I think they went to Atlantic, didn't they? After, after yes. Roadrunner. And that's where yeah. it all went. It'd be interesting to know how that happened. And I can't remember, I don't know if it's recorded, if maybe they got bought out by Atlantic or they just left, I don't know. But uh, if Metal Mike found out that you had a mask and it cracked, he would not be happy. <laughs> I never told him the story. <laughs> I meet him very still very often. He's one of uh, you know one of the guys from the old days, which I I meet still. You know, he he's been on all these metal cruises since he's having I think uh, a house in in Florida where he spent lots of time with his wife and on yeah. throughout the, the 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 winter period. And I meet him also on the Rock Heart Festival, which is uh, in in Gelsenkirchen, which is uh, not that far from the Dutch border. And he's also one of my favorite partners at uh, my favorite festival, which is called the Bang Your Hat Festival, which is in the south of Germany once a year mm -hmm. with mainly 80s bands. And there he is also with his lovely wife. And uh, But I haven't seen him now for two years due to the COVID reasons. Yeah, yeah. He's, um, I did a few sessions with him. Obviously, he works at... It he worked there in a similar capacity to you in terms of PR and he could obviously translate and he could speak in a number of languages, but he also had an ANR function and he obviously signed Crimson Glory. But uh, yeah, he's a funny one. He'll just like mid-conversation, he'll just get up and walk away and then come back with some kind of paraphernalia from yesteryear. It's insanity. <laughs> well, that's all I've got for uh, Roadrunner things. So thank you very much. It was actually, my cheeks are kind of hurting because I like it when there's a, this happens quite a lot. There's a, it's just a wind up toy. I just wind you up and then off you go. And the stories come, uh, come really now. And I'm just sitting there here enjoying it. And that's been, been very in, pleasurable for me. Thanks. It was big pleasure for me as well. Also, you know, throughout the past day to, to get up these memories once again. Because it's been ages ago and throughout my entire career in the music business, I wouldn't consider this as one of the top priorities. But just thinking now on, on what we talked and what I sent you before, maybe without Roadrunner experience, without this experience that Leo Lanz picked me up at the Lee Aaron interview with my passion for Lee Aaron for the Metal Queen, um, my life would have been different. I don't know. Yeah. And the good thing is that. Uh, I met Lee Aaron two years ago when she was in Germany uh, playing also the Bang Your Head Festival. And uh, I did an interview with her for uh, also for my, at that time I had a video 
you know, YouTube channel for my interviews, which were also called The Block of Rock. And it was really, really quite nice to see her on stage again because I always liked her. Of course, I was, I was impressed by her looks. And, uh, but I also liked her music. And uh, I was still impressed that even now, she's coming closer to her 60s. She's a really hot woman uh, on stage and she's still a good performer. Yeah. So maybe I have to thank my passion for her for my entire career. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? If it all starts from somewhere, doesn't it? There's always these little catalyst moments that uh, send you on certain paths. There's always some, uh, you know, lucky incidents. It could, could, could be this magazine. It could be this awful compilation selling nothing while the next stage selling with this brand 30 millions. Yeah. So it all was linked to each other and luckily and hopefully I'm not at the end of this process. So you never know what will happen with the block of rock. Maybe mm. I will finalize my, my, my documentary, which was very close to be finalized. Yeah. And, uh, I'm trying always since I kept all the media files to, to make a new run of it. I've seen lots of documentaries also from the US by all the guys uh, over there who did the uh, Bay Area documentaries and the LA documentaries. Yeah. They were all not perfect. Yeah. Same like your ones. Yeah. It's great. It's great footage, but it's, of course, it's not even Sam Dunn's documentary. He had much more money. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, at that time, I was also being on international film festivals and I talked to the uh, distribution company for Metal Evolution and I showed them a trailer, which I made with my documentary and they really wanted to buy it. But they, of course, they insisted to show all the references that I cleared the rights. Yeah, and this was mm -hmm. my weak point. Yeah, and I really never had the, the power, the financial power to do this. Yeah, mm -hmm. just knowing all the artists is not enough. So that's why... I'm still thinking one day I will succeed it. And at the moment I'm um, planning to release it at least as a long audio series, an audio format as a podcast. Yeah. And there yeah. will be a, um, I see a chance this year. There's a new Halloween album coming out this June and there will be a huge media impact about this. And uh, since they also play a key role in my documentary with all the people involved in, yeah. in the band being there and out, and now they're all together again. So I think I will take this opportunity with Halloween to, to restart this documentary, at least as an audio. Yeah. Well, you definitely should, for the reasons I said before. I'm, I, I don't know if I'll, um, I'll keep that bit in because obviously we were just... Getting, getting, yeah. acqu getting acquainted but um no i think it's 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 definitely worth going down certain rabbit holes especially on certain nuances of metal which people aren't too familiar with so german metal is is one of those things but it's a shame that is it just that that's the obstacle the music rights yes yes okay. and it's it the rights it's not not only the rights which are referring to the label mm -hmm. because this is quite easy because most of the music is either nuclear blast spv Napalm Records and some of the other independents. So this is quite easy. The, the problem is the publishing rights and the synchronization rights. This is a key right. problem when you mix the audio with visuals, which is not related to the band. So that means, is it me interviewing? Is it something else? It might, you know, you could, could say, forget about this. Yeah. And we're doing it as a kind of bootleg thing. Mm -hmm. 
mm. is, is possible, but then I would never get it on Netflix or anywhere else. This would be the ultimate goal for me. Mm. And to clear this, I tried it as another attempt last year, uh, talking to um, the clearance uh, uh, lady at Nuclear Blast. And she was telling me, you know, we could help from our label side as best as possible, but the the clearance with the publishing company will be big, big effort. And if you don't have the, let's say, the legal side completely uh, justified, then I will never get a chance to, to Interesting. get it everywhere. Yeah? So that's why I keep it myself. Um, it was a, you know, every time I watched it, I thought, shit, I was so close. Yeah. So it was planned six episodes, uh, 45 minutes. Four episodes are fully edited. And for the other two episodes remaining, we had all the footage. I already, already had my, my hostings. Mm. There's a way that, you know, I could rehost everything anew and then pull out just the videos and take out the music. This is my yeah. idea, yeah, to take out the music, having uh, maybe just some audio files uh, which are cleared from, from a library to at least have some guitar tunes around. And this is the idea which I'm following it to at least have it this way. Yeah, if it will be an online version or just one long video on YouTube or I have no idea what will be mm. an audio podcast uh, with all the interviews with long form because at least I'm happy that I have all the media files with long, yeah, long yeah, interviews, yeah. yeah, including Rudolf Schenker, Doro, Creators, Miller, all the Halloween guys, mm. uh, except Wolf Hoffman, Udo Dirk Schneider, and you name it. You know, they are all part of this Teutonic revolution, which <laughs> happened really it literally happened before my eyes when I was a kid. Yeah. Just when I started rock hard, because, you know, I had the, where I grew up in Dortmund, we had a club, which was next city in, in Bochum, uh, which was called Die Zeche, where lots of metal bands were playing. And, you know, we were with our magazine, we were kind of heroes because we, we knew some bands already personally. And there were some kids around us. They all also played in bands and were asking us, can we help? Can we get a, you know, we have a demo. Can you make a review? That's how I met Miller. Yeah, mm. though he's a bit younger than me and he gave me his demo. And that's how now this story started. Yeah. Mm. And there were lots of other bands, especially in this melting pot, this area where I grew up. People call it the Birmingham of, of Germany, the black country, <laughs> yeah, with lots of lots of cities linked to each other. Yeah. So that's where the metal really started in, in Germany. Yeah, I mean. I knew that I knew I'd have no choice. Well, I managed my expectations rather cynically, I guess. So I was like, well, my documentary is never going to get seen by anyone. So I'll just throw it on YouTube. And if anyone wants to know how Roadrunner started, then they can watch it. And I don't fancy getting sued by Warner Music. So I'll just do my own music that sort of rips off some of the bands in a stylistic way. It didn't work out the way I kind of wanted it to. What I should have done was I should have spent more time on the music to make more faithful kind of like parody. Because <laughs> the idea was the, and it was me and a buddy, and I was like, right, okay, I'm, we've, we can't do anything in person, so we've got to do what we can with what little time we've got online. So we're trying to share files and things like that. And I was like, wow, we need like a merciful fate esque riff. We need a Satan esque riff, and we sort of built it around that, but. I should have given it more time because I reuse quite a few of them, but I'm not going to get sued by Warner because it's all my own stuff. So, you know, it's it's a shame, really, that in your case, obviously, I assume the music itself is quite central to the narrative. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah of so, course. Yeah. But I've had to just sort of go, 
fuck it, I'm not, I'm not, not fighting that fight. But yeah, no, I hope it gets um, all sorted out soon. Definitely. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to plug or anything? Um, any other parting thoughts? I think that the development of uh, the past years with these, uh, let's say, all the possibilities, what you can do online, what you can do with, uh, you know, with just a microphone and with a computer and, you know, some crazy ideas to work from home as a like a little kind of pirate music station. This is one which I could would like to encourage everybody to do something. You know, I started my podcast with an old microphone of mine and with my old computer. And then I found it, it's, it's great to do it like this. And each episode was, was done under certain different, under uh, different conditions. So nowadays I have this, that I have, uh, you know, this podcaster from Rode microphone, which gives me a good sound quality. Still, it's not a studio quality, but it's, it's okay that way. I have this, uh, you know, this crane, which actually came in today because my old crane was not strong enough for this big microphone, which I'm having. So it was all falling down and I wanted to have it in front of me, not from the side. So this situation we have now, I'd have it just today. Last week, since I have a sponsor now for my podcast, I bought this desk. It's actually a, a desk 180 times 80 uh, centimeters which is adjustable. So it's going up and down. So I'm standing oh, right awesome. now, like at a bar. And afterwards, when I'm editing my next episode, I place it down. Yeah. So it's, it's like a studio right now. I invested quite some decent money, but you don't have to do it. You could do it quite easy. And there are tools um, which are for free on the market. There's a tool called Anchor FM, which is a company which has been bought by Spotify, where you can upload your audio files mean speaking about music, so to say, for free. And they have a service, service which I at least I think it's in the UK and in the US available, where you can add select tracks from the Spotify archive to this podcast. So you can do a full show with music and you don't need to clear it. Like I had to do it with my podcast episode. It's still not available in Germany, but I'm eager waiting for it to have my own shows. They are, called, they are not called podcasts. They are called shows with music. And this is something which the whole technique will make it quite easy. On the other side, for me, doing it a bit more professional, I love it to do these conversations like as I did in my business, doing in my business uh, days, also with artists. And it's so easy to do this kind of interviews like we're doing also with artists. I remember I started my my first rock art interviews with international artists, not the ones we've met on, on German festivals, but with international artists, we had to do it by letters. So I was typing questions, fill blanks, typing the next question, sending it to American bands. And six weeks later, sometimes we received the letters back with the answers. I still have uh, here have uh, letters by Overkill which was my first international interview, which is <laughs> handwritten by the former drummer Red Skates. Yeah. Wow. This is how we did it in the past. Yeah. And later on, of course, we exchanged letters. Let me see. I have one final thing for you, which we have, uh, which we, um, you know, we, we, that's the only chance for us to do interview with international artists before they came to Germany. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, 
but we we became pen pal friends with these artists. And one of my, my favorite last stories was uh, a band actually was, was signed with Metal Blade. And this was a band Flotsam and Jetsam. This is the original press folder on the Doomsday for the Deceiver album. And uh, back in my Roadrunner days, I had the chance to do an, you know, to do the, the press release for, for them and also do interview for magazines. And yeah. so I called Jason Newstead, who was a bass player and he was a main song contender at that uh, time. So I called him and we had a nice talk and uh, he promised me to send me a t-shirt. So I was giving my address. So we, he took, put the t-shirt in, in, in an envelope and sent it to me. So we became pen friends. He, I, he sent me some Christmas cards already, so it was nice. And uh, then a year later, um, I got a call in the morning by a journalist friend from Los Angeles who was also part-time working for Metal Blade, telling me that Metallica had this tragic accident with the death of Cliff Burton. And um, if I would know anything about this, and at that time Metallica was not that big, uh, enough mm -hmm. to be in, in news, uh, German news. So there was no internet. I didn't know whom to call and who could who could tell me if it was fake news or whatever. So I didn't find it out until a few days later. You know, it was confirmed. And uh, another few weeks later, I got the same call from the same guy saying, oh, I was at the funeral. And of course, it was quite depressing. But the band decided due to Cliff's parents that, you know, they had to move on. And they're thinking about hiring a new bass player. And they're looking for people doing auditions. And if you got any ideas, let me know. And I said, to be honest with you, I like the Flotsam and Jetsam album. And... Uh, there's a great guy, bass player. I met, I didn't met him in person, but uh, maybe call him. Yeah, it's a good idea. Maybe Jason Newstead. Mm. So it went on. It happened. Jason became new new bass player, and I thought, okay, I was not the only one giving this advice, so it's it's fine. Yeah. And uh, year, half a year later, so they went on tour uh, with Ozzy in the US, the Master of Puppets uh, presentation, and they became really huge in the US. And uh, a year later, in uh, September of 87, uh, they played Monster of Rock in Germany. And uh, the purple headlining, Metallica was second on the bill. And um, I met Jason for the first time. And in between, he was sending me, uh, let's see. Lots of letters. This is all oh, wow. Jason Newstead. <laughs> Jason so cool. Newstead. <laughs> Jason Newstead. Christmas card. <laughs> Jason Newstead. And we met at the festival. That's me in cool. my leather pants, Jason. And he was thanking me for his new life. And I have actually, I found this letters yesterday. He's telling me that I had, he had to move from, he was coming from, I think from Texas or somewhere in the South of US. He had to move to Frisco and he's new there's a band that they, they recorded an EP with cover version. I found this in this letters and I didn't recall that. So I kept them all. So there I have, I have a few of them. And sure you this scan is, them. yeah, maybe one day. And you know, he was really always, painting yeah oh wow yeah so Jason on the base yeah <laughs> this was quite nice and uh, 
So we met at in 87 at the Monster of Rock. And then with the Black Album, they played this um, the Circle stage first time in Europe. And um, they played Frankfurt. At that time, I was out of the, the metal business anyway. And uh, I was with Sony Music at that time, was doing my cuddle rock. And I knew they were playing Frankfurt. So I was trying, hmm. Maybe I should try to get hold of Jason's. How could I find him? And so I called some people and they're telling me which hotel they were in and they were doing some press dates on that on the show date. So I went there and uh, there was a promo girl from another record company and I came in. I was not looking I was not looking metal at that time. You know, I cut off my hair and was more like a normal guy. So I went there and she was saying, "Who are you?" I said, "I want to talk to Jason." "No, no, no, you cannot do." I said, "Please." I know you're doing your job here. I'm a colleague of yours working for CBS, Sony Music, and uh, do me one favor. This is my business card. There's my name on it. If the next journalist comes out, before the, the other journalist goes in, please do me a favor as a colleague. Mm -hmm. Give him my card and then see what's happening. So there was a guy in doing the interview. He was coming out. She goes in. And a second later, somebody was jumping out of this room, cuddling me. <laughs> it's amazing. Come on, five minutes, yeah? <laughs> and so I went into this room, and uh, he was telling me, crazy, guys, it's amazing, but it's, you know, it's a hard thing. It's, it's, uh, it's lots of stress and lots of stuff to do. And second divorce already. We all are divorced. You, you, we don't know, <laughs> but, you know, but it's great to see you. You got tickets for tonight. I said, yeah, I bought my ticket already. No, no, no. Go throw it away. I'll take care of you. Go to the guest list. I'll take care of you. <laughs> I said, okay. So one day in the evening at the, at the box office, there was an envelope for me with all passes necessary with, you know, the, there were the circle stage with the snake pits inside. So it was, yeah. you know, the, the little, little pits inside the circle stage and at that time, I didn't have mobile phones. It was 92. I didn't have a camera with me, but he was banging to me the whole concert. Yeah? So he was really happy that I was there. Yeah? Yeah. And I have no, you know, I have no films, nothing, not even a photo with me and him before the show, but there was no after show party. So I didn't see him after the show. I never had his address at that time and we never met again. Oh, that's and, a shame. Yeah. So, but this was this evening, with Metallica, even I was already outside the business and I, for myself, even it was the most successful album, I do not consider the Black Album as my favorite Metallica album. But being treated by him, however, you know, it happened that he became the new bass player of Metallica. At least something was, when I read these letters, something was happening after I, I somehow uh, made this suggestion. Yeah. This is still one of my stories and I don't want to, want to get told it by somebody else that it was the other way around. This is my story. <laughs> I think he's probably active on social media these days, isn't he? You could probably just drop him a line. Maybe. I don't know. He was, but he was not his official account. Oh, okay. Is he, is he not? Is he has he got people that do that? For yeah, yeah. That's what I've heard. Yeah, yeah. Then, then you know, he was having some other projects, and but I never really had the chance to to 
talk with him again, even later on. Then he was, uh, he was this Voivod and there was this, uh, you know, he wanted to play with Voivod on the Bangor Head Festival, then he, but he, then he got sick with his back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had to had the surgery. We never had the chance to, and now it's years ago. Yeah, so I don't know if you ever would remember me. Maybe I should show him the letters. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, well, thanks, man. That was awesome. I, I want to ask a lot of stuff about editing, but I've, I've kept it. For, it must be near midnight for you. Yeah, almost. And I have to do now my my interview, which I have to go online tonight. So, we'll still some busy work.